Thank you, Chad. Hey, how many people noticed Chad's shoes? Uh, yeah, a few of you. They, Chad has been, he came in this week with his new shoes, and we were like, I couldn't even see. Like, they were so white. Like, I needed my sunglasses. He's been talking about his shoes all week. And so he gets a shout-out for his shoes. Uh, but, yeah, it's good to be with you. And, again, happy Mother's Day. This is a special day for uh, for me and my wife in particular. It's our first Mother's Day with our little guy, Elliot. And so um, I get to give my wife a special shout-out just because I have the microphone this morning. Uh, motherhood is no joke. It's full-time, it's costly, and it's courageous, and uh, we honor all of those moms in our community. Uh, as Chad mentioned, we're continuing in this series called Words to Live By. We've been kind of working our way throughout the Gospel of Matthew, looking at some of Jesus' most famous teachings and, and phrases and words that we build our life on. And this morning, we, quite, we look at, quite possibly, the most famous, like the number one, potentially, uh, most well-known and famous teaching of Jesus from Matthew 22. There's a phrase that says, familiarity breeds indifference. And just to kind of keep with the theme of Mother's Day, moms know this, parents know this to be true, as they tell their toddler to be careful or be gentle. Uh, there's a, 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 an idea that like, the more you say it, the less weight it carries. And those words begin to just kind of bounce right off of us. Um, but it doesn't mean they're unimportant. And Jesus' words here are very familiar to you and me, I imagine. But they cannot be treated with indifference. And if if anything, given the context of his words, which we'll get to in a minute, they carry even more weight. They're more significant for us in the life of our faith. And I hope that we kind of uncover some of that meaning this morning, despite our familiarity with them. Um, why don't we pray as we just open? Jesus, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that it, it teaches us, it instructs us, it challenges us, it calls us forward. It, it rebukes us at times, and it guides us, God, on how you want us to live as we follow you. And so, God, we pray that you would speak, you would reveal what you want to teach us and say to us through this text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 22, at 34 to 39, says this. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now one of the hardest things for us uh, when we open scripture is, is bridging the gap between that context in that culture and our context in our culture. We're 2,000 years removed, and as you know, cultures and language and words and ideas change and take shape over time. But Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. He grew up as a Jewish boy. He grew up with the Old Testament as his scriptures, his Bible, if you will. And so when asked what the greatest commandment was, what's, what's the commandment that carries the most weight, Jesus? He replies like any good Jewish person would do, quoting Deuteronomy 6. 
He says this, quote, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And for the Jewish people, this text that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 was absolutely central to their faith. It's called the Shema in, in the Old Testament. Um, it comes from Deuteronomy 6, and it's a few verses, and Jesus just pulls one of them out of it. But the word Shema means to, to hear or to hear and obey. And it, it's the opening verse of this text that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word hear is Shema. Um, Scott McKnight says that this would have been considered the Jewish creed. It was the very first prayer that you, that you learned growing up as a Jewish boy or girl. And devout Jews prayed this prayer every morning and every night. Uh, some do to this day. They continue to practice that. And so, to some extent, this is like a predictable answer Jesus gives. What's the greatest commandment? He quotes the most potentially well-known commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But Jesus is, is a genius. Because instead of just giving one command, right, these, this uh, Pharisee is there to test him, Instead of just giving one, he gives two. They ask for the one single greatest commandment, and Jesus replies with two, saying, and the second is like it. And then he quotes Leviticus, everyone's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So you can imagine the people thinking, what is it? Is it, is it love the Lord your God, or is it love your neighbor? To which Jesus would reply, Yes. <laughs> it's, it's two sides of the same coin. For Jesus, you cannot separate the two. And one author says to, to ask that question is to miss his point entirely. Loving God and loving others, they're two sides of the same coin. And for Jesus, they are an entire summary of the Old Testament, of what the Old Testament was all about. This one command that actually is two commands... <laughs> becomes the very center of his teaching and for us the very center of our faith. Love God, love others. I'm sure you have heard those words, you're familiar with them to some extent. They are the source of many churches' mission statements or vision statements. They're the source of many Christian Instagram bios. Love God, love others. And for good reason. It kind of summarizes and narrows the whole of Christianity, the whole of following Jesus. It's a lot, there's a lot of words in the Bible. And we get this quick four-word response. Love God, love others. But there's a problem with this use of the phrase that I just want to kind of explore and tease out a little bit this morning. Because as much as we might agree with the phrase love God and love others, um, our understanding of what that means and how it looks in our lives really hinges on how we understand one word is the word love. As everyone's favorite 90s dance song says, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. The word love means many things to many people, doesn't it? Like on a day like today, I can say, I love my wife, I love my beautiful boy Elliot, and I love chili cheese burritos. Like they all are true. Um, we might be going to taco time after the, after the service. So I've got chili cheese burritos on my mind. Mother's Day, that's how you treat your wife. <laughs> uh, but really, when we say I love, what we often mean is I like. I like burritos. I like coffee. I like whatever it is, affogados. Chad made those sound so good. Love is often defined in the dictionary as an intense feeling of deep affection. And this makes sense with how we think about 
the use of the word in our culture, in our day today. It's kind of a passionate affection towards something or someone. Um, yesterday, I, I, pulled up be- <laughs> I pulled up behind this, like, big truck, and I'm just imagining, like, a big, like, burly man in this truck, and th- there's three bumper stickers he has. They're all totally different bumper stickers, but they all say the exact same thing. I love my dog. <laughs> and so one of them has, like, a picture of a golden retriever, which is just totally Kelowna. People in Kelowna love their dogs. There's, like, there's a next-level affection for dogs. But when we say, I love, what we often mean is, I like. I have an emotional attachment to something, and that's fine. But love has also kind of recently become sort of a convenient synonym for tolerance. To love something, often we conflate that with to be tolerant of something or someone. And if something doesn't feel good, if we don't like something, we will very quickly respond by using the phrase, you're not being loving. Or that's unloving. In fact, um, there's been times where in an effort to support and hold our, our volunteer leaders, those who are, are in spiritual leadership here at the church, um, to a, a standard of what we think is God's best for them. And we'll have some conversations when we notice, um, hey, your lifestyle actually doesn't reflect this, the, the standard. that doesn't align with God's best for you. And we have a conversation to support and encourage and also hold them accountable. And there have been times where we've initiated that conversation and, and people have left our church and on the way out the door have said, I felt you were unloving. When in fact, we have been trying to love them and some people feel like it's judgment or we haven't loved them. Love and tolerance can very easily be conflated. And it's now become this kind of like catch-all term, a sort of trump card to end any conversation. You just tell someone they're being unloving, and you're good. You kind of go your separate ways. But the word love, as much as it's loaded with all sorts of ideas, how we understand it is crucial both to this text, which again just happens to be at the center of our faith, and subsequently how we then live our lives, what it means to love God and love others. And if we want to understand What Jesus meant to love God and love others, we have to understand his definition of love. We have to take on his definition. We don't get to define it. We take on his definition. And so to do that, I want to just go back briefly to the Old Testament, because that's where Jesus goes. In giving us this great commandment, um, Jesus quotes two separate Old Testament scriptures that inform how we understand this command in Matthew to love God and love others. The first comes from Deuteronomy 6. I mentioned it before. It's the Shema, which says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the word here for love in the Hebrew is ahava. And it means something very different than kind of our popular use of the word. Uh, In this context, love is not primarily about a feeling or an affection, kind of an affinity towards something, though it can be at times. God is not commanding us to sort of drum up warm feelings or like passion, deep emotion for him or for our neighbor. Though that may happen in the process. Love in the Old Testament and here is primarily about commitment, not emotion. It's about loyalty. It's about commitment. To love God means to to serve him, to fear him, to obey him, to walk in his ways, to heed his voice, to obey his commandments. It's about committing yourself. 
if we substitute that idea into the text, because sometimes we just need to like substitute another word out for love, because love is so loaded. If we substitute it, that idea into the text, it might read this way. What's the greatest command, Jesus? He replies, be committed to the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Do you hear the difference? And we could parse out what it means to love God with our mind and our strength and our heart, and smarter people than me have done that, and that's important. But the idea is to commit your whole self to God. Not just your mind, not just your doctrine or your theology or your thinking, but how you live and your finances and your sexuality, your whole self, how you parent. Commit yourself to God alone. The emotions may come, but love here is about commitment. It's not a sentiment. It's something you do. It's like a choice you make to be committed to something. And this Old Testament concept of love is evident in the second text Jesus quotes from Leviticus 19. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, we, we really like this phrase, love your neighbor or love others. Uh, it, it's, it's catchy. It, it kind of summarizes maybe what we want to do or how we should live. But again, in this context, it wasn't a sort of emotional response that Jesus was talking about. To love your neighbor was to be committed to your neighbor, to be committed to their flourishing, their benefit, their good. Um, a scholar, Scott McKnight, writes this, Love in that book of Moses, meaning Leviticus, means respecting parents, providing for the poor, pr- protecting private property, honoring one's word, caring for the physically challenged, seeking justice for the powerless, living in sexual purity, showing love for one's enemy, and lots more. Do you see how our definition and understanding of love might differ from scriptures? Jesus has this understanding of love in mind when he gives us this great command to love God and love our neighbor. Except in, in Matthew, in our text this morning, he, he's not speaking in Hebrew, he's speaking in Greek. And he gives us this Greek word that we know as agape. And agape we often translate as unconditional love, which it is. But it's closer to the Hebrew understanding of love than, than what we might commonly think. It's more like an action, a decision, a choice you make. It's more a, a matter of your will than your emotion. It's been defined as an, act, an action of self-giving for the good of somebody else. Or the definition I like is a choice you make to seek the well-being of other people. A choice you make to seek the well-being of others. Agape love. So let me just sort of summarize what I think Jesus is getting at here in this text, in this great commandment. Jesus isn't telling us to like drum up emotion that we don't have, to be passionate, like just overwhelmed with affection and emotion for God or for our neighbor. Again, that may come. And you may feel that way. Even this morning in worship, there may be just like emotion that rises to the surface of your heart, and that's amazing. But Jesus is inviting us here to be committed to them, to be committed fully, commit yourself fully to God, and commit yourself to the good of your neighbor, to seeking the good of other people, to be marked by agape love, self-sacrificial love. That's what Jesus says is most important. 
Agape love. This command is at the center of our faith because this idea of agape love is at the center of what God is like. It's at the center of God's heart. It's really interesting. I read this week about this word agape. I know this word is, is popular even for us English-speaking folks. We like the word agape. It's a very popular tattoo. I've seen it on businesses. It's like agape massage, agape plumbing, agape whatever. You just throw agape before or after your business name, and it all of a sudden becomes really cool and trendy. Okay, Agape uh, is this great word that we love that, that means unconditional love or self-sacrificing love, and that's true. But the New Testament writers didn't go and kind of like look in a dictionary to figure out what Jesus meant when he used this word agape. In fact, um, other sources at that time didn't really pick up on this word. It didn't get used often. It's hard to find this word in particular used outside of Jesus' own teachings. There's just a few spots where it shows up. And so the New Testament writers kind of reinterpreted this word agape in the light of Jesus. They took this word agape and they understood it in the light of what Jesus did and said and taught and how he lived his life. Agape is what Jesus did. It's how he lived. It's how he treated people with agape. A, a, a choice you make to seek the well-being of other people. Agape is what led Jesus to the cross. In fact, Paul picks up on this same concept in Romans. He says this, But God demonstrates his own agape. For us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or 1 John 4 that says this. This is how God showed his agape among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Agape love is the kind of love God has for us. It's unconditional. It has no bounds. It's unwavering. It's self-giving love for our good, for our Benefit, But more than that, the, right, the writers of the New Testament don't stop there. They don't kind of end this, this definition of the word there. They go even one step further. They don't just attribute what God does as agape. They go one step further claiming that that is what God is. 1 John 4.16 says, God is love. God is agape. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. Self-giving, others-focused, self-sacrificial love. That is what God is. Jesus' command here for us is not random. It's not just comes out of nowhere. Jesus' command to love God and love others is rooted in God's very own character. And it's rooted in his very own love for us. Agape love, to be fully committed to God and others flourishing. It's the center of our faith. Because that's what God is like. And that's the kind of love we receive. And so there's this exchange that happens where we receive and then we give. We receive and then we pour out. We receive and then we share. First John says, we love because he first loved us. And so just a few closing thoughts for you and for us a few questions as we kind of begin to wrap up. First, do you know the love of God for you? Do you know the love of God for you personally? Like, have you experienced God's deep love for you personally? His agape love. 
Let me read again. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know the love of God? Have you experienced it deep in your heart and your soul? Sometimes we just need to experience it again. We need a fresh revelation, a fresh experience of God's love. Um, having uh, our boy Elliot has been kind of a fresh revelation of God's own love for me because there's something about uh, the love a parent has for their child that kind of gets close to agape love, to this unconditional, self-sacrificing love for our children. Do you know the deep, unwavering love of God? If our love for others is to be motivated by God's own love for us, it means we have to drink deeply from the well of God's love. And sometimes we just need a fresh experience. We need to open ourselves up again. Just say, God, shower me with your love. Have you experienced it? Have you let it sink into your soul? Secondly, if this command is at the center of our faith, it means that love is the measure of spiritual maturity. And it's not, it's not doctrine or understanding or knowledge or how much we know or our theology It's not our church attendance or how much we give or how much we serve. Those are all great things. Those are all part of following Jesus. But spiritual maturity is marked not by those things, but by how well we love. Are you growing in your capacity to love? Are you growing in your capacity to love? This question is so hard for me this week. Sometimes I don't know if I'm growing in my capacity to love my neighbor, much less my enemy. But this has to be the measure of spiritual maturity and growth. Am I growing? Am I becoming a person of love? Am I becoming a person of agape? Are you growing in your capacity to love? And lastly, agape love, self-giving love that puts another person's well-being in front of your own is really hard. What gets lost in the Instagram bios and the cute one-liners is that loving well is really hard. Agape love is really hard. It involves sacrifice, sacrificing our time, our money, sometimes our jobs or our hobbies or our passions for another person's good, for the sake of someone else. It's really hard at times. It means learning to be inconvenienced, learning to let someone else take center stage in your life. There's a story from Mark Buchanan's book, Hidden in Plain Sight, that kind of illustrates this love. It's sometimes hard for us to imagine or picture agape love. Of course, we look at the cross and we're going to again this morning. But sometimes we need just like, what does it look like for us to live in agape love? There's a story from his book that illustrates this. A story about a woman named Regina. Regina is originally from Rwanda, and became a follower of Jesus while reading her sister's Bible during the genocide that ravaged that country. And when she fled to Canada for refuge, she met her husband, Gordon, and following the war of genocide, they decided to return to Rwanda to show the love of Christ to the people who had once been her enemies. And she tells a story about a woman she met when she was there, a woman who had been affected by the horrors of the Rwandan conflict. She says this, This woman's only son was killed. And this woman was consumed with grief and hate and bitterness. God, she prayed, reveal my son's killer. One night, she dreamed she was going to heaven. 
But on the way, there was a complication. In order to get to heaven, she had to pass through a certain house. She had to walk down the street, enter the house, through the front door, go through its rooms, up the stairs, and exit through the back door. And she asked God, whose house is this? It's the house, he told her, of your son's killer. The road to heaven passed through the house of her enemy. Well, two nights later, there was a knock at her door, and she opened it, and there stood a young man. He was about her son's age. Yes, she said. He hesitated. And then he said this, I'm the one who killed your son. Since that day, I've had no life, no peace. So here I am, I'm placing my life in your hands. Kill me, I'm dead already. Throw me in jail, I'm in prison already. Torture me, I'm in torment already. Do with me as you wish. And the woman had prayed for this day exactly. And now that it had arrived, she did not know what to do. But she found, to her own surprise, that she did not want to kill him or throw him in jail or torture him. In that moment of reckoning, she found she only wanted one thing, which is a son. She said this to him, I ask this of you, come into my home and live with me. Eat the food I would have prepared for my son. Wear the clothes I would have made for my son. Become the son that I lost. And so he did. He became her son. I love that story because it illustrates two things. First, how beautiful agape love is when it takes root in our lives, in our hearts, in our actions. But secondly, because it illustrates how hard it is. Agape love is hard, self-sacrificing. For the good of someone else, it's hard work. But Jesus' command here to, to love God and love others, to be marked as people of agape, to grow in our capacity to love well comes first from us experiencing and receiving that same love from him. And so as we close this morning, I want to take just a minute and just kind of posture ourselves both to receive and to share that kind of love. Would you pray with me as we close? Sometimes we need like a physical posture to help us help our heart and sometimes our mind just capture the gravity of something. And so I just invite you in front of you just to open up your hands before you. We open up our hands this morning for two reasons. First, we open up our hands to symbolize receiving the great love of God, the lavish love of God. Maybe for you, you just need a fresh encounter with God's love, a fresh shower of his love over your life, your heart. I invite you just to open your hands and receive his love for you in this moment. Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. Your great love for us, self-sacrificing love that took you to the cross. We receive your love for us in our mind, in our heart, in our body. God, we receive your love. We agree with what you say about us. We are loved beyond measure. Thank you, Jesus. And secondly, we, we open our hands to, to share the love that we've received, to give it out, to be a, a channel of that same love to those around us, whoever that might be this week. And so God, we come this morning, we come with, with people on our mind, 
neighbors, friends, coworkers, people that we engage with online or in person. We pray, Lord, you would help us be people marked by love, marked by your love, that we would be people who share the great, deep, lavish love of God to those around us. And so, Lord, I pray just so practically that you would bring one person to mind this morning, maybe one relationship, one person that we might extend this kind of love towards, one person who needs to know that they are loved beyond measure. Would you bring that to mind? As we go from here, would you prompt us, stir us to action? We thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you for your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray.